Daniel chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar sent this message to the people of every race and nation and language throughout the world. Peace and prosperity to you. I want you all to know about the miraculous signs and wonders the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how powerful his wonders. His kingdom will last forever, his rule through all generations. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was living in my palace in comfort and prosperity. But one night I had a dream that frightened me. I saw visions that terrified me as I lay in my bed. So I issued an order calling all the wise men of Babylon so they could tell me what my dream meant. When all the magicians, enchanters and astrologers and fortune tellers came in, I told them the dream, but they could not tell me what it meant. At last Daniel came in before me and I told him the dream. He was named Belteshazzar after my God and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said to him, Chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too great for you to solve. Now tell me what my dreams mean. While I was laying in my bed, this is what I dreamed. I saw a large tree in the middle of the earth. The tree grew very tall and strong, reaching high into the heavens for all the world to see. It had fresh green leaves and it was loaded with fruit for all to eat. Wild animals lived in its shade, and birds nested in its branches, and the world was fed from the tree. Then, as I lay there dreaming, I saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven, and the messenger shouted, Cut down the tree and lop off its branches, shake off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Chase the wild animals from its shade and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump and the roots in the ground, bound with a band of iron and bronze, and surrounded by tender grass. Now let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him live with the wild animals among the plants of the field. For seven periods of time, let him have the mind of a wild animal instead of the mind of a human. For this has been decreed by the messengers. It is commanded by the holy ones, so that everyone may know that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world. He gives them to anyone he chooses, even to the lowliest of people. Belteshazzar, that was the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now tell me what it means, for none of the wise men of my kingdom can do so. But you can tell me, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Upon hearing this, Daniel, also known as Belteshazzar, was overcome for a time, frightened by the meaning of the dream. Then the king said to him, Belteshazzar, don't be alarmed by the dream and what it means. So he replied, I wish the events foreshadowed in this dream would happen to your enemies, my lord, and not to you. The tree you saw was growing very tall and strong, reaching high into the heavens for all the world to see. It has fresh green leaves and was loaded with fruit for all to eat. Wild animals lived in its shade and birds nested in its branches. That tree, your majesty, is you. For you have grown strong and great. Your greatness reaches up to heaven and your rule to the ends of the earth. Then you saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Cut down the tree and destroy it. But leave the stumps and roots in the ground, bound with a band of iron and bronze and surrounded by tender grass. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the animals of the field for seven periods of time. This is what the dream means, your majesty and what the Most High has declared will happen to my Lord the King. 
you will be driven from human society and you will live in the fields with the wild animals. You will eat grass like a cow and you will be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven periods of time will pass while you live this way until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. But the stump and roots of the tree were left in the ground. This means that you will receive your kingdom back again when you have learnt that heaven rules. King Nebuchadnezzar, please accept my advice. Stop sinning and do what is right. Break from your wicked past and be merciful to the poor. Perhaps then you will continue to prosper. But all these things did happen to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, he was taking a walk on the flat roof of the royal palace in Babylon. As he looked out across the city, he said, Look at this great city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. While these words were still in his mouth, a voice called down from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, this message is for you. You are no longer ruler of this kingdom. You will be driven from human society. You will live in the fields with the wild animals, and you will eat grass like a cow. Seven periods of time will pass while you live this way until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. That same hour, the judgment was fulfilled and Nebuchadnezzar was driven from human society. He ate grass like a cow and he was drenched with the dew of heaven. He lived this way until his hair was as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. After this time had passed, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven. My sanity returned and I praised and worshipped the Most High and honoured the one who lives forever. His rule is everlasting and his kingdom is eternal. All the people of the earth are nothing compared to him. He does as he pleases among the angels of heaven and among the people of the earth. No one can stop him or say to him, what do you mean by doing these things? When my sanity returned to me, so did my honor and glory and kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored as head of my kingdom with even greater honor than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honor the king of heaven. All his acts are just and true, and he is able to humble the proud. Amen. Oh, Father in heaven, we want to know you more today. And Lord, we come to this passage um, just with our hearts and our minds open to you. Lord, would you teach us today? Would you show us more of your heart? Show us what you're doing. Show us your heart for this world. Show us your heart for us Show us your heart for those in power, Lord. And help us to come to this message humbly and to receive from you, to have our lives shaped by your word this morning. So come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Um, Could someone who knows how just turn me down a little bit? Is that okay? Oh, Stephen, you're still here. Hi. Thank you. Um, So how many of you have been here for every Daniel session that we've had so far? Nigel has. Okay, a few of you. Great. Uh, Roughly speaking, the story so far is, uh, in fact, oh, why don't you, uh, okay, I'll give you one minute. Recap to the person next to you, Daniel's, Daniel chapters one to three. Go. If you haven't been here, get the person next to you to tell you what's happened.
Okay, so basically what we've been doing is we've been following the people of Israel in exile in Babylon. If you remember, um, God called his people Israel to be a nation, to live in the land that we now call or used to call or whatever call, depending on your politics, Israel. Um, And um, God wanted the people to live there as a beacon to the whole rest of the world of what living in relationship with God can look like. But what we read consistently um, throughout the story so far through the grand narrative of the Bible is that the people aren't that good at living for God wholeheartedly, at demonstrating what life with God is like. And so time and time again, God sends prophets, God sends words to his people and says, come on, shape up, live well. I want to bless you. I want you to be my people in this land. And consistently, um, it doesn't last long. The people fall back into sin, fall back into idolatry. And so eventually, uh, what we talked about a few weeks ago was God... um, gives the people over to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And the king of Babylon invades the land of Judah, um, the southern kingdom of Israel, and destroys everything about the nation, fundamentally. He kills all the nobility so that there's no one... Imagine if someone invaded England and took out every single member of the royal family, including the ones that we don't know who they are. Um, Which, let's be honest, there's surprisingly loads of them, aren't there? It's like, oh, they're a royalty as well. Uh, Kill them all. No, don't kill them all. But uh, that's Guy Fawkes or something. Um, Backtrack. Okay. Uh, but uh, get rid of them all. Uh, you know, those high court judges, uh, sack them to uh, get, get rid of them, kill them. That's what the Daily Mail would probably say at the moment. Um, and uh, everyone who's anyone in the kingdom, we're going to imprison or kill them and probably kill their families too. Um, anyone who's graduated from university is probably a threat. Uh, so you guys are going down, even though, let's be honest, everyone knows that that's not true. Um, and, uh, but we're going to take some kids... Some intelligent-looking kids um, who, you know, young men who are still kind of, we're able to mold them and influence them. We're going to take those guys, plant them in Babylon, teach them the ways of Babylon, the language of Babylon, the story of Babylon, the religion of Babylon, so that they can go back, evangelize their friends, and forever wipe out the people of God to all intents and purposes. Yay! So that's where Daniel begins the story of Daniel. So you've got Daniel um, and his friends, um, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who are called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Or is it the other way around? Something like one of the two. Um, I should know that, but I don't. Uh, So uh, those are four of the guys who are taken to Babylon, and the king's intention is to convert them to Babylonians, to become people like himself. Um, so that he can completely wipe out the people of God. And so the questions that we come into the book of Daniel uh, with are things like this. What is God's purpose going to be now? Now that the temple is destroyed, now that there's nothing left of the people, now that there's no hope, is God still going to be doing stuff? Can he still do stuff? Is God of Israel God in Babylon as well? Or has he fundamentally lost? Are God's purposes in the world over for good? Is this doomsday? Is this the end of the world as we know it? Is there a politically higher power than God? Or a ruler who can thwart his purposes fundamentally in the world? But interestingly, as we've gone through the story so far, there's another character that kind of comes to the four that you don't really expect. And that is the character 
of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Now, often we just kind of think of Nebuchadnezzar as this kind of silly man (laughs) who doesn't quite get it. Um, And he definitely was that. But he was a really evil, brutal tyrant. Like, that's really important for us to remember when we come to this passage. Nebuchadnezzar, to the mind of the earliest Jewish readers of this text, was the epitome of an enemy of God. Like, although God handed the people over to him, Nebuchadnezzar loved, um, like, everything that was opposed to God, Nebuchadnezzar stood for. Um, and, and he was just a mentalist, he was a tyrant, he was crazy. So if you're a Jewish, early Jewish reader of this text, what do you want to happen to Nebuchadnezzar? You want him to get his comeuppance, right? You're reading the story thinking, when's God going to finally, you know, um, I know you guys never think that about anyone, um, but when's God going to kind of do the justice thing that we want, do the vengeance thing that we want, and come and show his authority and power in the world by finally doing away with this lunatic? That is how uh, (laughs) I think a lot of people would have used to read this text. So now hear the shock as we've had a few chapters where in Daniel 1, um, God uses the people to show Nebuchadnezzar that actually when you live life with the true God, it's actually a good thing. It does you good. And remember Daniel and his friends prosper in the palace of the king by not compromising in their faith in God and in their practice as Jewish people. Do you remember that? Then in chapter 2, God shows Nebuchadnezzar that actually there's only one God who understands dreams, who gives dreams, who interprets dreams, and who knows the future, or who can see what's coming in human history, and who is in some sense over it. God has the grace to show Nebuchadnezzar that in chapter 2. Could have just stamped on him. That would have done the job. But instead, God shows him. God chooses to give Nebuchadnezzar a dream from the Lord. He didn't have to do that. Do you see? Then in chapter 3, God chooses, rather than just bursting out in the flames of the furnace and swallowing Nebuchadnezzar whole, instead, when, when Nebuchadnezzar puts the friends in the furnace, God shows up, visible to Nebuchadnezzar. He didn't have to do it that way. But he shows up, visible to Nebuchadnezzar, to try and show him, hey, there's a God, and he's higher, and he's mightier than you, and he's good. So Nebuchadnezzar is still alive in chapter 4. Whoa, there is a God. And then, even more surprisingly, let verse 1 hit you in the face. Nebuchadnezzar sent this message. Oh, actually, bad translation, sorry. I'm not going to be picky about translations, but this bit is bad. Uh, Because it actually starts this. I, Nebuchadnezzar, to all the peoples of the world, I... Nebuchadnezzar. In other words, who's writing this chapter in the Bible? (laughs) Who gets to write a chapter in God's holy scriptures, in Israel's holy book? (laughs) A Babylonian king, tyrant, lunatic guy. Do you get that? That's kind of odd, isn't it? What's he doing telling some of God's story? Who is this guy to tell God's story? Not only that, but he goes on. Peace and prosperity to you, which incidentally doesn't sound like Nebuchadnezzar that we've known before, does it? (laughs) May you have peace and prosperity. Um, 
Anyway, uh, I want you all to know about the miraculous signs and wonders the Most High God has performed for me. Are you shocked? You should be shocked. This should raise a massive level of intrigue in the mind of every reader. What does this say about our God? What does this say about the way he interacts with people who are fundamentally opposed to him? What does this say? So, um, the, pe- the story... Oh, we've disappeared. Come back. There we go. And we've crashed. And we're back. I really thought this would be a technical, flawless way of doing this. Sorry. Um, I, Nebuchadnezzar. The story picks up at Nebu- with Nebuchadnezzar really at the height of his comfort and prosperity uh, in the kingdom. Um, he says, I was living in my palace in comfort and prosperity. The image is that Nebuchadnezzar isn't at war at the moment because there's no one else to be at war with. He's conquered the whole world, basically. His riches are absolutely astronomical. Babylon is the epitome of artistic and architectural beauty. And just to top it all off, Nebuchadnezzar, Bev mentioned this a few weeks ago, Nebuchadnezzar, you, on every brick that he used to build in the, king, in the city of Babylon, he just thought, well, <laughs> better be safe than sorry. He wrote his name on every single brick so that people would know that this glory comes from Nebuchadnezzar. And so the story pictures him in his palace, which is the highest point in the city, the most glorious epitome of beauty and power, and Nebuchadnezzar kind of wandering around. But his mind isn't at peace, and that's because he's had another one of those annoying dreams. Do you remember in chapter 2, he had a pretty disturbing dream? God loves to speak through dreams, and he loves to speak to Nebuchadnezzar through dreams. So, uh, this time, he's a little bit nicer than he was last time, if you remember. Uh, this time, I issued an order calling in all the wise men of Babylon so that they could tell me what my dream meant. When all the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and fortune tellers came in, I told them the dream. Do you remember that's the difference from chapter 2? Chapter 2, he's like, tell me the dream or I'll kill you. Um, and they're like, Um, But now he kind of, he knows that they're rubbish and Daniel's cool, so he doesn't bother with that trick again. Um, And so he tells them the dream, but they can't tell him what it meant, or they wouldn't tell him what it meant. You could equally read that as, at last, I love that word, that phrase, at last Daniel came in before me, and I told him the dream. And so Nebuchadnezzar relates this dream, and just briefly it tells the story of a massive tree, doesn't it, that grows, fills the whole earth, and it's beautiful. And Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was actually, uh, in some ways, really beautiful. The leaves were fresh, it was loaded with fruit, animals lived in it, that's the picture of kind of the other peoples of the world, kind of living under the, the protection and shade uh, of this great kingdom. And everything is absolutely fine. In a way, the picture of the tree at this point represents Nebuchadnezzar in his palace at this point, doesn't it? There's a, there's a sense of peace and a sense of okayness. And then out comes, out of the middle of nowhere, this kind of rude interruption from heaven. Um, this kind of breaking into the sense of peace and ease that Nebuchadnezzar felt. Uh, and it turns out, <laughs> all of a sudden it turns out, the tree isn't the highest thing. 
in the story. Did you see that? Up until then, the tree is the highest point of the story. And then out comes a messenger coming down from heaven to the tree, as in there's a power above the tree. Now, this is very disturbing for Nebuchadnezzar, but not half as disturbing as what the messenger says. Cut down the tree, lop off its branches, shake off its leaves, scatter its fruit. Chase the animals from its shades and the birds from its branches, leaving virtually nothing. Leaving the stump. Imagine taking a chainsaw to a beautiful, massive tree and just cutting right along ground level so that it's like level with the length of the grass. That is the impression that we get. And everything that is, was a part of the kingdom, is scattered and is taken away. Let, let, and then now we get, um, yeah, and then here's what happens next. So we're going to protect the stump for, <laughs> with a band of iron and bronze. That's what I use to protect all my trees. Um, and uh, let it be surrounded by tender grass. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the wild animals among the plants of the field. Now, here's where things get very strange for us this morning. For seven periods of time, let him have the mind of a wild animal instead of the mind of a human. <laughs> for this has been decreed by the messengers. It's commanded by the holy ones so that everyone may know. Now, this phrase is crucial, comes up four times in the passage, as in the, uh, the outward obvious meaning of this passage is this verse. Ready? So that everyone know, may know that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world. So everyone may know that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world. He gives them to anyone he chooses, even to the lowliest of people. So now, as we just read, Daniel explains the dream. A couple of uh, interesting things here. Firstly, uh, Daniel's afraid to interpret the dream. He's, he's actually, well, is he afraid? He's saddened by the dream. Now think about what that means by his relationship uh, with Nebuchadnezzar, about his relationship with Nebuchadnezzar. That Daniel hears this dream and isn't like, <laughs> King, your time is up. You're going to be taken down by Jesus. Um, and he doesn't say that. He's actually troubled by it um, and says, oh, King, I wish this was for your enemies. Now he might just be being polite because he doesn't want to get his head chopped off. Could be. Could be. But I think over the years, Daniel has actually become a friend to Nebuchadnezzar. And the reason I think that is because at the end of his interpretation of the dream, which basically is this, you're going to have everything taken away, all your source of pride, all your source of arrogance, everything nice about your kingdom is going to be taken away. You're going to be cast away from human society. You're going to eat grass like an ox. You're going to be given the mind of an animal. Um, until seven, seven years are complete, and then you'll be, uh, God will give you the kingdom back. Then at the end, Daniel doesn't need to do this. He doesn't need to do this, but he gives him a warning. Um, Please accept my advice, King Nebuchadnezzar. Stop sinning and do what is right. Break from your wicked past and be merciful to the poor. Perhaps then you'll continue to prosper. Daniel didn't need to do that, but he did it because he loved the king. Now think of the implications to us as we deal with life under government, generally, or under bosses at work, or under whoever is in authority over us. Sometimes we look at government or we look at authority and we just want God to kind of sort them out. But actually our attitude as people of God has to always be one of love. 
And sometimes we've got to say hard truths to people in power. That's really important. It's definitely a part of what the church should be doing, speaking hard truths to people in power. But I was thinking this week, um, we had a politics night on Friday with some of the young people. It was really fun. We talked about American elections and Guy Fawkes and blowing up the American elections like Guy Fawkes or something like that. And so it was really interesting. Um, And uh, one of the things that we kind of talked a little bit about was like, actually, isn't it interesting that imagine, well, (laughs) imagine Trump or Hillary (laughs) becomes the next president of the United States. Neither of which I don't think is a particularly, uh, well, can't be too political, but fine. Imagine that. The responsibility of the church in that situation, what is it? It's to pray, to pray blessing, to pray guidance, to pray for God's peace, to pray for him to open blind eyes and bring salvation and love and blessing and actually to pray for the blessing of that kingdom, whatever. Make sense? That's what Daniel models here. That's not my main point. It's good. It's 5 to 12. Don't worry. Uh, So uh, Daniel gives the warning. Uh, It seems to not fall on particularly receptive ears because a year later as God has been so patient and maybe Nebuchadnezzar's woken up each day feeling a little bit safer because nothing's happened yet Um, (laughs) so a year later Nebuchadnezzar's freed from all the worry about that dream it didn't happen God was obviously wrong that time and Daniel well he's a nice guy but he missed the point on that one Um, I'm still fine so he's walking around on the roof of his glorious palace reading Nebuchadnezzar 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 and as he looks out out over his land. He says this really, <laughs> this really beautiful, uh, heartwarming speech. Look at this great city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. He's so humble, isn't he? It's just so nice hearing his kind of really down-to-earth view. And you can imagine all the slave laborers in his city being like, who built this? You know? <laughs> um, <laughs> and God's like, okay, enough's enough. <laughs> We're doing this now. So the voice comes once again. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar's beautiful day-to-day life is rudely interrupted by heaven, by God. Um, and this voice comes basically saying, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, now is the time This is all going to happen. And so uh, Nebuchadnezzar is driven out and he loses absolutely everything. He loses his kingdom. He loses his human relationships. He's driven away from people. He loses his status. He goes from being this great kind of tree to being nothing, to being at the bottom level of that dream that he was reading about. He even loses his humanity, the stuff that makes him him. And he says he's given the mind of a beast, uh, which is very strange. Commentators kind of get really stuck on this bit. It's like, Oh boy, what's going on here and what's the relationship between God and taking away his human mind and giving him the mind of the beast and was this some weird mental illness and how do you ca- what what was going on and is that okay and is it okay that God does this and does that mean that God's responsible for all mental illness or not or whatever <laughs> can of worms. So, uh the long and the short of it is Nebuchadnezzar loses everything and God takes away everything that he regarded as good in his life. God takes it all away. 
Now, either way, whatever your interpretation of this passage is and of what went on for Nebuchadnezzar, either way, this raises the question, isn't God nice? Like, I thought God was nice. And a lot of what we say as Christians to try and get people to think like us is God is just love and he loves everyone and he's, he's all for you and God won't hurt you and he won't do anything to harm you. And I mean, uh, that's a very cliched understanding, but do you get what I'm saying? Is God also a God who sometimes interferes and ruins my life? Is God a God who reserves the right to break into my day-to-day life and annoy me? (laughs) Might he do that? Might he still want to do that? Is that just an old covenant thing and now we're in the new covenant? God just doesn't want to break my life at all? Does this make sense? These are important questions for us to engage with. Actually, as I was thinking about this, <laughs> remember the people of Israel? And when they escaped from Egypt, they didn't have much faith. And so God, rather than leading him straight into the land, said, okay, we're going to do this the long way, and led them around the wilderness for 40 years. Is God the kind of God who might do that? waste someone's 40 years (laughs) yeah apparently so or like Jacob when he wrestles with God and God pops his hip out and leaves him with a permanent scar so that he limps for the rest of his life is our God the kind of God that might make me limp my whole life does this make sense or like Zechariah, do you remember that? When Zechariah is praying um, and God gives him the word saying, you're going to give birth to a son, you're going to call him John, he's going to be John the Baptist. And Zechariah says, yeah, whatever God, as if that could happen, don't you know I'm actually quite old and my wife is quite old and we can't have kids. And God says, okay, I'm going to take away your voice. It's not helping the situation. Let's get rid of it. <laughs> so he makes Zechariah dumb for like nine months. Is our God the kind of God who might take away someone's voice? Who might ruin his day like that? Imagine all the things he couldn't do for the next nine months. How annoying is that? Or like Saul going to Damascus on a perfectly innocent trip to destroy the church and the people of God. And God is rude enough to show up and blind him. (laughs) Might God be the, like we think of God as the guy who restores sight. Might he also be the God who takes it away? Or like the exile, like Daniel's own situation. If God is the God who plants us, might he also be the God who uproots us? And in all of these situations, why? Why? What might he be doing? Now, there's two extremes that you can go to when you talk about this kind of thing. The first is to say, well, that means that everything negative in my life is in some way caused by God, sent by God to do something in my life. It's in some way caused by God to either discipline me or teach me or maybe punish me or whatever. And the Bible says, no, 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 don't go there. Like Jesus is able to look at people who are suffering and say, that is Satan. Satan did this. Satan kept this woman bound for 18 years. An enemy did this. Does that make sense? So we can't just simplistically look at our lives and when anything bad happens, blame God or say this was definitely his will, his doing. No, no, no. 
Because when Jesus taught us to pray, he said, Lord, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, not everything that happens on earth is the direct will of God. However, does that then mean that God never does stuff in our lives that, ignore, that, that annoys us? You know, like some, I feel like some people, if they drop their phone and it cracks, they're like, oh, it's the attack of the enemy. You're like, well, not necessarily. It might be that you dropped your phone and you need to, you know, like, be more careful or not, not buy one that's so expensive or something like that. Do you know what I mean? And it's like, actually, no, not everything, might, not everything is, is, is the fact that it's a fallen world. Some things might be God doing stuff. And I'm not saying God dropped your phone, but... <laughs> <laughs> like there might be situations where there's a relationship that we're in that's actually really toxic, that's not doing us good. And God might be like, do you know what? We need to get rid of that. Or a job that you're in that maybe feels great, maybe pays really well. But actually, God's like, it's not doing your soul good. And maybe he'll get you fired. <laughs> but it's all love. And when God moves in our lives, it's all love. So the question, is it all God? No. Is it all Satan? No. But can it all be used by God to transform and change and heal us? Yes. And actually redemption is the amazing lesson of scripture that whatever we face, whether it's from the evil one or whether it's from God, God will transform it and do us good through it. And of course, that's what happens um, for Nebuchadnezzar. Um, at the end of his time, he's able to actually look to God and get full restoration. And now it's different, isn't it? At the end, do you remember this? At the end of, after this time had passed, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven. Notice that that's the key to him getting his life back together. When he was on the top of his palace, the only way he knew how to look <laughs> was down. He never knew how to look up. So God had to put him on the earth with his face in the ground chewing grass <laughs> for a long time to get him to learn to do this and look up and look to God. But when he does that, when he learns worship, when he learns to look to God for everything, um, my, his sanity returned and he praised and worshipped the Most High and honoured the one who lives forever. Now listen to how much his language has changed from me, my kingdom, my power. I did this. I'm so great. Instead, now he's saying about God, his rule is everlasting. His kingdom is eternal. All the people of the earth are nothing compared to him. He does as he pleases among the angels of heaven and among the people of the earth. No one can stop him or say to him, what do you mean by doing these things? And he gets everything back. That's interesting as well, isn't it? That God, didn't, God doesn't think that his kingdom is necessarily a bad thing in itself. That, that his authority is necessarily a bad thing in itself. Or that the beauty of achieving stuff in the world is necessarily a bad thing in itself. But he just needs to do it with a different heart, a heart of worship. Now for Nebuchadnezzar, I think this passage is God looking at this guy who he's been kind of wooing 
for three chapters and like trying to show himself true and trying to show himself to, trying to show himself to, um, over a period of years of Daniel being in his palace. And so far, it's never gotten personal for Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of chapter one, he's like, oh, that's cool. These guys are great. Let's give them a promotion. But he doesn't think about God. At the end of chapter two, he's like, wow, that God is cool. Uh, we're going to promote these guys and give them more of a promotion, uh, and, but it doesn't get personal. At the end of chapter 3, he goes as far as saying, hey, if anyone says anything nasty about that God, I'm going to cut you into pieces. <laughs> Which is, you know, a very nebuchadnezzar way of dealing with a situation. But it's still not personal. It's still not in his heart. But now we have a fundamental shift. Now it says, I Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honor the king of heaven. All his acts are just and true, and he is able to humble the proud. Now it's not just, I recommend worshiping this God. Now it's, I love this God. I worship him. I live for him. He's my God too now. Does that make sense? How cool is that? And I think this story is God looking at this guy and saying, what is it in his life That is the blockage to full relationship with me. What is it in Nebuchadnezzar that time and time again I show him myself and he can't turn to me? Now for Nebuchadnezzar, it was his crippling pride. It was the inability to look outside of himself and the the complete self-absorption and thinking that he was the center of the known universe and the unknown universe as well. Now it might be pride for you that stops you fully trusting God, that stops you walking in relationship with God. As I was thinking about it this week, I think, I think actually all of us, I think, have a different thing, maybe or a slightly different thing, that keeps us from walking in full relationship with God. As God looks at each of us like he looked at Nebuchadnezzar, what is it, maybe in my life, that God might want to bash in, interrupt, and take away today? For some of us, maybe it's... Just a shame that encompasses your whole life. Feeling like, I can't be honest with anyone. I can't be open with anyone because I'm worried they'll see the real me. For some of us, maybe it's a, a, a desire for money. I, like, I can't fully trust God because I'm holding on to this and I'm protecting this so much because I can't bear to think of life without it. Or maybe for some of us, it's a desire to be popular or fear or, uh, I don't know, an unhealthy relationship that you're in or something like that. But for every one of us, I think there's a danger that we might have something in our lives that stops us from fully trusting God. Does that make sense? And I love how Jesus deals with this kind of thing. Like this isn't just an Old Testament thing that God um, takes stuff away from Nebuchadnezzar to do him a favor. It's actually just (laughs) the kindness and the severity of God in all our lives. I love it when Jesus looks at the rich guy. You remember this story? And the rich guy comes to him and says, what do I need to do to get to get, f- to get fully in, to be in the kingdom of heaven. What do I need to do? And Jesus looked at him and loved him. He looked at him and loved him and then said one of the meanest things he's ever said. <laughs> Sell all you have, give it away, and then come follow me. Why? Because he knew that for this guy, that's the thing. And he put his finger on it. And in love, he said, we need to get completely rid of that for you to fully trust me. 
or like for James and John when they followed Jesus. And their thing was this anger. And Jesus needed to like, like just work on them and heal them from their anger and their sons of thunderiness um, and help them to get over that. Or for Thomas, it was just the ability to trust. And Jesus had to say, like, put your fingers here, here. You can trust me. It's okay. Or for Martha, Mary's, uh, not my one. She's got no issues relating to God at the moment. Uh, if, God, if God has any issues with her, she just stares him out and wins. Um, but, <laughs> um, but the Martha in, in the Bible, and, and she's just like, do, 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 do. And, her, and Jesus has to say to her, actually, Martha, you're worried about many things, but only one thing is necessary. And so the question, I think, for us this morning from this passage is, what is it for you that is holding you back from complete trust? Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's like Nebuchadnezzar. Maybe you're doing great in your job. You're doing great at home. And you've built an empire. Um, If so, uh, please do tithe. We really um, appreciate that. Um, uh, uh, And then give it all away. um, After you've finished doing the 10% to us. Um, But what is it for you? Um, Maybe there's something uh, that's stopping you. Uh, And let's just ask the Holy Spirit to come and do a work in our hearts. You know, for Nebuchadnezzar, this actually did cost him everything. And there's always a danger when we pray to God, God, would you do a work in my heart? Would you help me? Remember the psalmist in Psalm 139, it's like, Lord, see if there's any unclean way in me and lead me in life everlasting. It's a risky prayer to pray because God might just chop you down (laughs) and help you to start again. But, Do you think Nebuchadnezzar thought it was worth the journey at the end? (laughs) When at the beginning of the passage, he says that that famous, that lovely line, I want you to tell, I want to tell you about everything that God has done for me. Nebuchadnezzar didn't see this as a negative. He saw God's discipline as love. Like when Hebrews 12 tells us that like actually God disciplines us as sons. No person enjoys discipline at the time, but it's worth it. It's so worth it because God wants to build something beautiful in us. And God wants us as a church to be a people who are fully yielded to him, fully trusting him, fully living for him. And sometimes that means he has to take a little bit of a scalpel to our lives and cut off some of our kind of spiritual tumors and help us to live free. Make sense? So why don't we just ask the Holy Spirit to come and to speak to us? Is that good? Lord God, in... um, We just invite you to take a good inventory of our lives, Lord. And Lord, where we're struggling to trust you, we pray that you would highlight what it is that needs to go. Or how it is that you can release us to be people who fully trust you. So Lord, see if there's any offensive way in me. And leave me in life everlasting. Lord, we want full life. We want your full life. And so, Lord, we ask that you would show us now and do your operating work, Lord Jesus. We, just hum- we submit ourselves to you. We say, God, have your way in our lives. Lord, where we need to lose something, help us to do that. where you need to take us down a peg or two. Help us to climb down a peg or two. 
where you need us to rise up out of fear. Help us to do that. Holy Spirit, we just invite you. Would you put your finger on it for every one of us here? Come and do that.